that is that Tuesday, uh, this Tuesday, October 31st, marks a very special Reformation anniversary, 500 years uh, since the uh, widely held anniversary of the Reformation. I was musing before the service uh, with a few members about a particular irony that uh, in many Reformed churches, uh, we do not follow church calendars. Um, No special high holy seasons, and yet uh, it's worthwhile to stop and pause and remember the Reformation. Not because it is some high holy day, but because uh, it is a reminder of the gospel. And that's what we're going to see together today as we stop and pause from our normal sermon series going through 1 Corinthians and turn to one of Paul's other letters, Romans chapter 1. We'll be reading verses 16 and 17. This is the text that Sinclair Ferguson calls the text, capital T, capital H, capital E, the text of the Reformation, uh, and with good reason. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 You can find that on page 939 in our cart Bibles. Please join me before we come to hear God's word. Please join me again in prayer. Gracious Lord, loving Father, kind and merciful God, we thank you for this, your word. We thank you that you have inspired men, holy men of old, who were carried along by your spirit and wrote down the words that you gave to them so that we may read your living and active words so that you by your spirit may pierce and divide our souls and spirits before you. We pray indeed that you would do that today. We pray that you would give us hearts to rejoice in who you are, that we would see something of our Savior and be made to worship you by your spirit working in us. We ask in your name, amen. Hear now God's word as we find it in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he indeed add a blessing to its reading and to its hearing. I'm sure that many of you already know the story, the story that is commemorated uh, this Tuesday, October 31st. It begins with the story of a German monk by the name of Martin Luther, a scholar by all rights and a teacher of the Bible and of theology. It begins with this monk being a bit unhappy by a practice that was widespread in the medieval church in Europe at the time. It was a practice of the sale of indulgences. Indulgences in the Catholic Church are temporal remissions for the penalty due uh, to sins. Not remissions of the guilt of sin, but the penalties that are attached to it, whether penance or purgatory. And at the time, uh, these, these indulgences were being sold. For modest investments in the building of St. Peter's Basilica, uh, and there were all these uh, little jingles as these people went around and sold letters of indulgences to the masses, telling them that as soon as the coin in the money coffer clings, the soul from purgatory springs, and encouraging them to pay and to donate 
perhaps to gain an indulgence for themselves or for their relatives in purgatory. Luther was unhappy with this practice, and so he did what any good scholar would do. He called for a rational debate of the issues. Showed up in his 95 theses. 95 sentences, really. The whole document is rather short. It would take you maybe 10 minutes to read it slowly. 95 sentences nailed to the church door in Wittenberg. He wasn't aiming to start a new church. He wasn't trying to to rally the troops of the disaffected proto-Protestants throughout Europe. In fact, he wrote these theses in Latin, which uh, at the time was the universal symbol that this was to be a gentleman's quarrel. This was for scholars to debate. This was not written in the language of the people. He did this in a very calculated way. He put it in a place on the church door where you would put such events and, and debates that you wanted to have and issues that you wanted to raise for discussion. He did it calculated and methodically, and yet you know how these things sometimes happen. They run ahead of your intentions. And so it did for Luther. The 95 Theses went viral, you could say. Within two weeks, they were translated into the language of the people, into German. Thanks to the advent of the printing press, they were printed in mass quantities, and they were spread throughout the country, and suddenly, Luther had more attention than he bargained for. Suddenly, people did want to debate with Luther. Bishops and cardinals and theologians wanted to debate with him and discredit him and to back him into a theological corner, and yet the more Luther was cornered, the more emboldened he became. The more he was cornered, the more he relied on the plain truth of Scripture. One of the things that uh, contemporary Christians are sometimes surprised with the first time they read the 95 Theses is that it is not this thundering call to Protestant orthodoxy that we might otherwise think it should be or would be. There's much in the 95 Theses that does not sit well with evangelicalism at all. Luther upholds the reality of purgatory his belief at the time. He upholds the, the importance of the papacy, upholds uh, the, the idea that the saints have merits that can be given to believers. It's not until three and a half years after October 31st, 1517. Three and a half years later, Luther has already been excommunicated and he's brought to trial in a city called Worms, where he makes his famous stand, and you probably know the words that he utters there. They lay a stack of his books on a table, and they ask him, will he recant? And specifically, will Luther recant of the doctrine of justification by faith alone? At first, he asks for one day to consider, and he spends that day in prayer to the Lord. Then he comes back, and they ask him again, will you recant? And he replies, unless I am convinced by Scripture and plain reason, my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot, I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me, amen. That's the kind of Luther we want to celebrate. It's kind of Luther that gets the the Protestant blood flowing through our veins, but that's really, it's another story. Today we're talking about the beginnings, and that first moment when one person was willing to take a stand, really as small as it might have been, a stand on God's word. Remembering beginnings today, and in remembering beginnings, it's really only right that we should go and consider Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. This really was the text that that helped Luther to begin to understand the magnificence of the gospel. Later in his life, about a year before he died, he would write 
uh, that when he understood the meaning of the words in this text, specifically verse 17, he says, I was born again of the Holy Ghost. The doors of paradise swung open, and I walked through. So if the Protestant Reformation begins with Martin Luther, Luther's Reformation begins with Romans 1, 16 and 17. It's also right that we start here uh, because by the time Luther makes his stand in Worms, he is a living example of what Paul means here to be unashamed of the gospel of Christ. In many ways, that's the role that Luther played in the founding of the Protestant Reformation. He was a bold, outspoken believer. He was thoroughly convinced of the truth of God's word, and he was willing to stand on that truth, even if kings and emperors and cardinals and councils stood against him. He was willing to be a man unashamed of the gospel. That's the same role that we see in Romans 1 that Paul was playing. Here he was, desiring at least to make it to Rome, the seat and the center of imperial power in the ancient world, the place where he knew that as soon as he got there, the gospel that he proclaimed in every place would have met with derision and mocking and disbelief. And yet he said, I want to come to you, and I am eager to preach the gospel. I am unashamed of the gospel. It really is what it still means to be a follower of Jesus. Not just to be a Presbyterian, not just to be a Protestant, but what it means to be a Christian. That we would be so convinced, that we would be so grabbed by the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ that your whole life, your whole hope, your whole joy rests in Him. To be a follower of Christ means that you are unashamed of the gospel. Well, Paul gives us several reasons in this passage why we ought to be unashamed of the gospel. The first one is that we ought to be unashamed of the gospel because of what the gospel is. We ought to be unashamed because of what the gospel is. What is the gospel? Well, verse 16 tells us, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation. That's what the gospel is. It is the power of God. Now, we need to note that when Paul says the gospel here, he means the word preached, the message of the gospel itself as it goes out. He was so closely associated with the gospel, and he was saying now that when I come to Rome, I want to give that same message because I am not ashamed of the message that goes wherever I go. I'm willing to own it. He's speaking of the message itself. That's what gospel means, by the way. Gospel means the good news. In verse 15, he says, I am eager to preach the good news to you. That's what you do with news. You publish it. You proclaim it. Once it's out there, then it can be acted upon. You can believe it or you can disbelieve it, but first it has to get out there. What Paul is talking about here is the message of what Jesus has done. He has died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that three days later he was raised according to the scriptures. He says this message is the power of God. The gospel message doesn't just tell us about the power of God, although it does that. The gospel message doesn't just point us in the direction of the power of God, although it does that too. But the message itself, the gospel is the power of God. Wherever and whenever Christ is proclaimed, God is at work. Why is that important? Well, if you've ever been in the market to buy a tent, you want to go camping with your family, and so you go to REI or L.L. Bean or wherever it is that you buy such things. 
And you know what it is to see all the examples, those tiny little models of the tents that they have available. And they're cute, aren't they? They've got all the flaps and all the poles and all the compartments, and they're all there, but the whole thing could fit on your bedside table. And it's like a, a, a four-person tent for a family of chipmunks or something. Anytime we get the chance, anytime we're in a position to give witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ, so often when that happens, when a door is opened to tell our neighbors or our friends or our coworkers or whoever the Lord has put in our way, when we get a chance to give witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ, so often we get nervous and anxious. Because we feel like the burden of convincing them falls on us. We've got to say just the right thing in just the right order at just the right time. And if we miss any of those steps, we have lost a soul. And so our stomach churns and our palms can get clammy because it feels as though we're trying to get someone else to give up everything they've trusted in and go and live in a tent. But all you have to show them is this minuscule, laughably small example of the real thing. But Paul's saying the power of convincing and the power of the gospel doesn't rely on you. The gospel is God's power, and as it goes forth, even through faltering lips, even through your own failing tongue, God is at work. That's what we find in 1 Corinthians 1.18. That's what he wrote to the Corinthians. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It happens just as the Lord said it would happen in Isaiah, doesn't it? My word will not return to me void. It will accomplish that which I purpose. It shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So what is the message of the gospel? It's the power of God, isn't it? Specifically, it's the power of God unto salvation. I love the way the King James has it there. Unto or into, to bring people into salvation. Salvation is one of these beautiful comprehensive Bible words. It's an umbrella word. It contains multitudes of, of other theological subcategories that all fit under uh, this one heading of salvation. And so what are we talking about when we talk about God's power unto salvation? Well, we're talking about God's power unto complete newness of life in Christ Jesus. When we speak of salvation, we're talking about a new status with the Lord because he declares us justified in his sight because of the righteousness of Christ that is given to us. When we speak of salvation, we talk about new privileges with the Lord because we are adopted as his children. We're given access to the Father. Even as we prayed today, we're given reassurance that he hears and loves his children. We have privileges that are completely new in salvation. We have new behaviors, new desires, because part of our salvation, not all of it, but part of our salvation is the work of sanctification that the Holy Spirit works in the lives of believers. And so we grow more and more in holiness. It's just one tiny little subset of it, but it's there. It's something new that happens in the lives of believers. We receive a new hope in the Lord in salvation. As we look to the promise that one day we will be glorified with him and in his presence forever. That's what we talk about when we talk about salvation. Complete newness of life in Jesus Christ. And sometimes that newness of life is is much more evident in some people than it might be in others. 
We had an interesting conversation during Sunday school today, and I'll let you ask Steve Barry later about the change that happened in his life when he received newness of life in the Lord. But sometimes, you know, there are those people that you see them and you say, God saved them? And it's this double take that you knew who they were before and you see who they are now, and it's this amazing new change the Lord has worked. And how does he work it? By the gospel preached. God's power unto salvation. My father's story is much like that. The Lord saved my dad out of a life of drugs and drinking, out of a life of disbelief and railing against this God that he knew as a child and walked away from in his later teens and into his, uh, his early adulthood. But the Lord saved him in, in an almost instantaneous, almost palpable joy for the things of Christ. And how did it happen? Well, it happened quite simply. My dad was a truck driver. And one day he went in, he, he drove a, a gas tanker for BP. One day he went into the terminal, and his truck was in the shop, and so he had to use someone else's. And all the presets on the radio were wrong. That's it. And in searching for the rock and roll stations that he would listen to, he heard someone preaching the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And at 60 miles an hour, with a gas tanker behind him, the word of the gospel became the power of God unto salvation. You know people like that. Maybe you are a person like that. But it's the same power that worked in my father, that worked in Steve, that works in so many other people. It's the gospel message preached, and we ought not to be ashamed of that. It's the same power that converted Paul on the Damascus Road. It's the same power that opened the gates of heaven to Luther as he meditated on Romans chapter 1. It's the same power that works in so many of those who are sitting here who have an utterly un- uh, fantastic story by the world's standards that it's just sort of drab, that you pass from a believing Christian childhood into a believing Christian adulthood, yet it's the same power of the gospel to keep and to defend and to turn the eyes of his people to himself unto salvation is the power of the gospel. That's why we ought not to be ashamed. It is the power of God unto salvation. Secondly, we ought not to be ashamed of the gospel because of what it reveals. Not because of what it is and not ashamed because of what it reveals. What does the gospel reveal? We see it in verse 17. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. I wonder if that is how you would write that sentence. I don't mean that in a blasphemous way or... or, or how would you write scripture? I mean, sometimes when you come into a church, they put the, the sermon notes in the bulletin. And sometimes there's that little outline with a blank space so you can follow along with what the pastor is saying. And, and, and what if you came in this week and you hadn't read the passage yet and you weren't familiar with Romans, but you knew the Bible and you knew the gospel and it said, in the gospel, the blank of the Lord is revealed. What would you say? In the gospel, the mercy of God is revealed. In the gospel, the love of God is revealed. The grace of God. Yes, 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 it is. But Paul says there's more, isn't there? In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, that might seem counterintuitive to you. It would seem especially counterintuitive to you if you were Martin Luther or if you were any other medieval Roman Catholic. Because Luther believed, as he had been taught, 
that when you hear the words, the righteousness of God, you are to think of the righteousness whereby God justly condemns sinners. Righteousness and justice really share the same root. And so you think of these things. That's how Martin Luther understood it. And it's a fearful thing to recognize that God is righteous in that way. That He is utterly just. That the Lord is the one, says Exodus 34, who will by no means clear the guilty. Now, if that's your conception of the righteousness of God, you understand the problems that it poses for you, don't you? What is to be done about your unrighteousness before the Lord? If that is what is revealed in the gospel, what is to be done about your sin and your failings and your iniquity? That was the problem that plagued Luther. How can you stand before the judge in the last day and hold out any chance of salvation when not even a whiff of sin can stand in the presence of the Lord who is holy, holy, holy? What can be done? Well, Luther was a monk, you know. And by all accounts, he was a very good monk. He gave away all earthly possessions to join the monastery. He took discipline very, very seriously. He beat his body. He treated himself harshly. He prayed and he fasted. He later wrote, If anyone could have earned heaven by the life of a monk, it was I. Yet he could not get over the fact that true righteousness is a matter of the heart as well as the hands. It is a matter of the will as well as the works. And though he labored day and night to grow in righteousness before the Lord, Those words from Romans haunted him. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. How on earth could God's just righteousness be good news for sinners? The wrong approach here, folks, would just be, as so many have done, to say, well, Luther was kind of a fanatic, you know. He was a little oversensitive about his sin, and and maybe he was more sensitive than any of us have ever been. I'll grant you that. But let's not write him off here. Luther has put his finger on the real problem. God is righteous and just. And fallen man is truly unrighteous. And if there is any hope of salvation for anyone, there must be a reconciliation between those two. How can the just righteousness of God be good news for sinners? Well, the answer comes for us the same way that it came for Luther. When we understand that Romans 1.17 is not talking about a righteousness that is against us, but rather a righteousness that is given to us. It is God's righteousness. It is not ours. And it is righteousness as a gift. It's not a slow and grinding process whereby the Lord works in us as we cooperate with him to make us righteous, which is and was the Catholic view. It is rather a once-for-all declaration that we are counted righteous because we have a Savior who is utterly righteous and who has stood in our place and grants to us by faith his own status before the Father. It is not a righteousness that we work by the sweat of our brows and the dedication of our piety. It's a righteousness that we receive with the open hand of faith from the God who delights to give good gifts to his children. 
That's the righteousness of God that we see here. It's a gift that counts Jesus' status with the Father as our status with the Father. It's important to know in the scheme of Romans that what Paul is doing in these last two verses of of this main first section, verses 16 and 17 that we've read, Paul is laying out, in a sense, the, the theme statement of the rest of the letter. These same ideas will come up over and over and over again. And indeed, we see this idea of the righteousness of God coming up over and over again. Where does it come up? Well, it comes up in chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. Take a look there. Beginning in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, and stretching to the previous verse, chapter 3, verse 20, everything in between that is an argument that everyone is unrighteous. And nothing we do with our sinful flesh can make us righteous. Not works of the law, not works apart from the law. And then chapter 3, verse 21, he begins to sing a new song. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. You see the corollary with 117 there. It's revealed in 117. It's manifested in 321. Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This is not a righteousness that is against God's people. This is a righteousness that is for God's people. It shows up again in chapter 10. Take a look there in the beginning of chapter 10. Paul is ruminating on this question. How could so many of my Jewish brethren and countrymen rejected the gospel? How could it be that though they have the law and the prophets which bear witness to this, that they could not have seen it? And he comes to verse 3 of chapter 10, for being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. There is a righteousness that comes to God's people. Verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. See, the gospel is good news because it proclaims that there's a Savior came to live an absolutely perfect and obedient life before the Father and to lay down his life as a sacrifice for the just demands of God's righteousness and to give us his status with the Father. This is a righteousness that is for us through faith. The gospel is good news because it proclaims, as 2 Corinthians says, God made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's a way of sifting through all these doctrines, kind of as a tourist. I'm sure that lots of people this year have traveled to Germany, have traveled to Europe, and they've walked in the steps of the reformers, they've seen the sights, and their, uh, their souls have been invigorated. Or perhaps they simply went and looked as so many historical curiosities entertainment for the mind and, and thinking about what the difference has been in Western civilization over these last 500 years. But there's a false sense of safety in thinking that we can be at a, a safe distance from these things. The gospel proclaims to us that there really is no safety unless this righteousness is made to be a part of who we are, unless it comes close to us. We can have no eternal hope apart from being drawn into this gospel, 
heart and mind and soul. So dear friends, don't be a tourist in these things. Set up residence in the gospel. Be unashamed of the gospel. Believe in the gospel. Rejoice in the Lord who gives his righteousness to unworthy sinners. That brings us to our final point. The final reason why we ought not to be ashamed of the gospel. We ought not to be ashamed of the gospel because of how it can be ours. Because of what it is because of what it reveals, and because of how it can be ours. We don't generally think of the gospel as belonging to us, do we? In fact, in Scripture, it it almost never says that phrase. It speaks of the gospel as belonging to someone, but it belongs to the Lord. It is the gospel of God, or the gospel of the kingdom, or the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are always references to, to what it reveals or proclaims and who it belongs to. But there is a sense in which the gospel and all that it proclaims to us is meant to be ours and meant to set up residence in our hearts. The gospel is good news. It is God's power. It is a revelation of God's righteousness. But this news and the power and the righteousness is proclaimed so they would find a home in human lives. So that believers would be unashamed to own this message. Or perhaps unashamed to be owned by it. That's why shot through these two verses that we've read already, from beginning to end, we can't really take it in a logical sequence. I had to put it at the end to speak about faith because it's everywhere in this. This idea that wherever men and women grab hold of the gospel with hands of faith, that this message becomes not only objectively good news, but subjectively good news. You know the difference, don't you? Objectively good news says God is gracious and merciful to sinners, categorically. Subjective good news says God is merciful and gracious to me. And where this gospel is grabbed with hands of faith, it becomes subjectively good news. It becomes ours. That's what he said. The gospel is God's power for salvation. For who? For all those who believe. Not those who are born into the right family or receive the right sacraments or go through all of the steps. This gospel is God's power for salvation for those who believe, and it becomes yours. It is a gospel that reveals God's righteousness, but it is righteousness that is proclaimed from faith and for faith. I love the way the NIV puts it. It is from faith from first to last. God's righteousness is all about the faith of those he is working in. That's how the righteous person lives. That's how they receive life, and that's how they express the life the Lord has put in them. It's living by faith. What does it mean for us to have faith, though? It's kind of a a sketchy idea. It's so intangible that we don't quite know what category to put it in and how to think of it. We know what it is to partake of the Lord's Supper. You eat and you drink. We know what it is to be baptized. You uh, are washed with water and the the cleansing of your body. But what about faith? It seems so intangible. Well, the the Reformation, uh, the conception of faith in the Reformation uh, was much talked about. And the theologians throughout the ages have talked about three elements to saving, justifying faith. Three things that faith is. First, faith is knowledge. Now, faith is certainly much more than knowledge, but it is never less than knowledge. 
Faith is not this sort of misty optimism that you see so often on, uh, on the Hallmark Channel, that just believe that things will turn out well, and it doesn't matter if you have a basis for that belief or not. No, no, faith has a content. There's a knowledge aspect to what faith is. The content of our faith is the gospel message, what Jesus Christ has done to save and secure a people to himself. That's where faith begins. It begins with knowledge, but after it has knowledge, it moves on to conviction. This is the firm belief that not only can we uh, comprehend what the gospel is preaching, but we actually believe that it is true. Jesus Christ really came in the flesh. He actually lived a perfect and righteous life. He actually died in place for sinners. He was really buried. He was actually resurrected on the third day, and he now really offers salvation to all those who will believe in him. It's conviction, not just a mental assent. Now, we need to say that if we've only got these first two, we are no better than the devil. What does James say? You believe that the Lord is one. You do well. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. They know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God exists, that he rewards those who seek him in faith, as we heard from Hebrews, and yet it does not make a change in their hearts because they are missing a piece of faith, aren't they? The last idea is personal trust. Not just the idea that, that God is merciful to sinners, but it's your heart's desire to partake of that mercy. It's the almost involuntary hand of faith that reaches out to grab hold of the fringe of Jesus' garment because you know that if you can get close to him, you will be healed. It is the prayer that we pray along with the publican, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. James Boyce says that it's the prayer that we pray along with Thomas, my Lord and my God. You see, it has to become ours to be of any use to us. Spurgeon puts it in a different way. He says, faith is the eye which looks. Faith is the hand which grasps. Faith is the mouth which feeds upon Christ. In many ways, that's a good summary of the legacy of the Reformation. A reclamation of this biblical doctrine that salvation comes to those who believe. That they are justified. They're given a righteousness that does not belong to them, but that stands in their place, so that when the Lord looks at his people, clothed in garments of Christ's righteousness, he says and declares, you are righteous and you are mine. I suppose there are lots of good ways that you could celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Reformation this week. You might read the 95 Theses, perhaps for the first time. There are lots of documentaries uh, that you can watch. There are lots of biographies that you can read. There are seminars that you can listen to or attend. But there is no better way to celebrate the legacy of the Reformation than to celebrate the gospel. To understand this truth that we're dealing with here, that the gospel is God's power unto salvation. No better way than to trust that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel from faith and for faith. That's what we ought to take away. Not that we have a, a reformational or Protestant chip on our shoulders that says we are so much better than everyone else, but that we come away saying, I am unashamed of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, believe in the good news. Believe and do not be ashamed. Let's pray. Gracious Lord and King, thank you for this word. 
which works in the hearts of your people, and as we have seen, has worked so often throughout history, because you are the one who is working in it. We pray that you would be working through it and in it today, even as it was proclaimed, that it would resonate in our ears, in our minds, in our hearts, in our wills. You would cause many to come to you, to profess faith in you, to reach out and take hold of you with hands of faith, and so receive your righteousness given as a gift. Thank you, O Lord, for the gospel. May we always be unashamed, we pray in your name. Amen.